market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is, yep, we're somping it up. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, the doctor who doesn't yet know what somp means, but I'll tell him, Dr. Anirban Mahati. How are you, buddy? I'm not somping. I don't know what somp means. <laughs> maybe you are somping then. If you don't know what it is, maybe you are. Is that, is that possible? Is that Maybe it's possible. It's always possible. possible. You are a somping kind of guy. Uh, it's Anything is possible. <laughs> so, somping is not actually a thing, but the Reserve Bank releases a thing called the somp. So, <laughs> quick tangent, just because, you know, we don't normally do that. God love the RBA, right? God love bureaucrats. So in, in, in bureaucraties, this is actually the SMP, but the rest of the market calls it the SOMP because it's a statement of monetary policy. The RBA probably correctly, probably literally correctly says, well, of shouldn't be in the acronym. Let's just call it the SMP. But everyone else likes to have a name. It's better if you can kind of pronounce something like this. So the rest of the market puts an O in it and calls it the SOMP. It is, as I said, the Reserve Bank Statement of Monetary Policy, which sounds really boring. It is a little bit, but there are some interesting forecasts from the RBA on how quickly we may or may not get out of this particular pandemic. So let's talk about that. We will talk about tech on a tear. Mate, we're recording this on Thursday morning. The Nasdaq was up 2.6% overnight. What crisis? We'll talk about, well, speaking of crises, we'll talk about CBA's profit fall. We'll talk about Lyft, the competitor to Uber, which lost a phenomenal amount of money. And, you know, we'll probably dip into the Marbag, won't we? Oh, we, maybe. 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 It would be. Maybe. Something different. <laughs> Let's get on with it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, buddy. So the statement of monetary policy, the SMP according to the RBA, or the SOMP according to the rest of us, was out last week after we put this podcast or last week's podcast to air. And I just want to talk about it because in terms of kind of you know, setting the scene for where we are, where we're going at the economy. The RBA was not unusually forthright. They're always forthright, but some of these numbers are quite stark. Let me hit you with some of them. For the year ending December 2020, so effectively the current calendar year, the RBA is expecting GDP growth to fall by 6%. They're expecting the unemployment rate to go to 10%. Inflation to be one and a quarter percent, which is no mean thing, by the way, because it was negative for the year ending 30 June. And the trimmed mean inflation, the numbers they like to talk about, at 1%. Those are, it's fair to say, mate, a very, very ugly set of numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, GDP growth minus 6, uh, the worst number since the, since the Great Depression, effectively. Unemployment rate at 10%. We've had it worse, but not great. And by the way, that's upgraded. So previously, the RBA had said there was going to be 9%. Now it's going to be 10 Inflation, at least, is going to be positive. I thought it was going to be negative last time. This is pretty ugly. Now, I will say, not as ugly as the UK. We heard overnight the UK GDP growth fell by 20%. Mm-hmm. Singapore fell by 40%, we heard um, a month or so ago. What do you make of the RBA's forecast, mate? Are they realistic? What do they mean for the market? What do they mean for investors? What do they mean for the economy? Are you surprised? When you look at those stats, where does it leave your mind? So I have a question here. Is this uh, <laughs> <laughs> this number, because you looked at this number, mm-hmm. is it year over year? Or is yes. it quarter over quarter? So it's the full year versus the previous year. So December full year GDP growth minus six compared to the 2019 calendar year. So full year? Yes, year ended. Absolutely. A- and the other ones, I think that, that the UK has to put out, are they comparable or are they quarter? I think the UK one's a quarterly number. So that's that's a big difference there. It right? is, but we're not going to have any minus 20% quarters though. We're going to have some really, you know, we're going to bump along at some ordinary numbers, but... I don't, well, touch wood, but we're not mm. going to get anything close to the UK's twenty percent. Or, or you're right, to, you're right to say they're different numbers. That's yeah, absolutely like, true. It's, the comparison is. That's absolutely true. Right? Yes, yeah. yeah. So just just pointing that out. But, but one fifth of the economy contracting. I mean, that, that's pretty I, don't, big. I don't know how you deal with that. Um, 
I mean, look, 6% is going to be bad enough for us and unemployment is going to get to 10% as it is. Mm. So, uh, I don't know. I mean, the previous forecast was 6% is basically the same, right? Yes, so GDP growth forecast hasn't changed. The good news, by the way, was the June 2020 full year was originally minus 8, came in at minus 6. So, we know improvement. thus far, well, yeah, and, and the, the reality wasn't as bad as they had feared. So mm. that, that's, that's kind of positive. Um, I mean, look, you know, minus 6, minus 8, they're still terrible numbers, but things weren't as bad as the bank thought they might have been. Yeah, like I mean, again, I think they're not as bad. Uh, their their future prediction going forward, though, is they've they have uh, brought it down, right? Yes. So I mean, yep. for the June year ended, it was seven percent. Now they're saying four, right? Six uh, December twenty twenty one. Now they're saying five. Correct, correct. Um, now, to some degree, that's because you don't have as far to bounce back if you don't fall as far. Yeah. But it's also, as you say, that's absolutely true. The unemployment rate stays higher for longer in the current forecasts. Yeah. So it's kind of one of those stories where the RBA is kind of saying. Guys, things aren't going to be as bad as we thought, but they're going to take longer to get better. Yeah, so it's a longer recovery. Part of that, I think, is just because of, um, you know, like force shutdown, again, a, another force shutdown in Victoria. Yeah, so, right. So I think those those def- definitely impact numbers. I don't know, how, like, I mean, I, I don't know how to interpret these numbers. Right. They're largely because, um, to me, maybe the GDP numbers are... A government can make them whatever they want. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so, so, so if the government can make them whatever they want, do I really care right, what that right, number right. is? Is I think people talk about it because you know you want to increase the GDP number to go up. Just you know, build some roads that you didn't need. Yes, build exactly. some, uh, uh, you know, build some playgrounds that didn't. You, you could just. And you could knock down a building and build another one. Yeah, you like can you replace down. an existing building and still boost GDP. Yeah, you could actually, you know, you could knock down an entire city that didn't need knocking down, <laughs> and you could build it up. So I, you know. I almost think that GDP numbers are overrated, in my view. That's so that's, funny. Um, I look at the employment number more uh, closely mm. because, again, you can also fake employment up, you know, by, again, by doing this, you know, let's knock down stuff so you need employment for that. Yeah. Um, and let's uh, then build stuff that you need employment for that. Um, given that the government is giving, you know, all governments are doing this, mm-hmm. stimulus is involved, I guess the employment, unemployment numbers are more reflective of um, what's going on in the economy. So that is not that great. Now, for what it's worth, some absolutely breaking news right now because I just saw it on Twitter. So let's throw this in. Um, we, I just saw the July Seek job ads. Mm-hmm. Um, job ads were up 2.3% in July compared to June. Okay. Month on month, so that's a positive. Yeah. The downside, job ads are down 30% year on year. So we're getting some sequential recovery, which is all you can really hope for. Yeah. But again, and, and again, the, you know, so these stats are funny, mate. This is one of those, I get asked reasonably regularly on media or just on social media, you know, what do you think of these numbers? You know, and, and the, the question the interviewer is asking is, hey, look, they're really bad. You know, what do you think? And my first answer, generally speaking, is, well, we kind of expected it. You know, we, we, or if we didn't, we should have. If anyone thinks, wow, really? 30%? That's, not, that's a surprise. You're like, well, guys, what, what, what did you expect given where we're at, right? No one's hiring. The economy's still in a funk. Confidence still hasn't returned. So the question isn't really, you know, is 30% bad? Of course it is. But, you know, what does it mean for A, what we expected, and B, what's the trajectory look like? And so any sequential improvement will take. I'm a bit disappointed it's only 2.3%. I would have liked a 5 or a 10 just because, you know, it is so something's recovering. Mm. Um Interestingly enough, they say most states and territories, excluding Victoria and the NT, saw a rebound in job ads across the month, but at a much slower rate than the previous month. We we're just talking mm. about that. Um, and again, the state growth month on month, um, you know, it, it's a, it's a. So ACT is down twelve percent, Queensland seven percent, New South Wales six percent, um, Victoria. Sorry, they were, they were positive. Sorry, ACT growing at twelve percent, Queensland growing at seven, New South Wales growing at six. All good. 
Tasmania flat, Northern Territory flat-ish, Victoria down 13% month on month. So obviously Vic is second largest state in the country by, by economic growth and size. That is going to have a meaningful detraction on the total national numbers. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, 12% in ACT, pretty good. 6% New South Wales, 7% Queensland. We'll take those. Um, the ones I didn't mention, by the way, SAWA, both five and a bit. Um, so, you know, it's... it's yeah, I mean, yeah, again, terrible but hopefully improving is the best we can kind of hope for, really. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think that's, that's a fair characterization. I mean, to me, the bigger thing here is these... Um, I think the numbers we are seeing is reflective of essentially what's happening in the service industry, right? Basically, the service industry has been the is is the industry that has been impacted the most, yeah, right? Because correct. they have did the front line tourism, retail, tourism, education. retail and education. So this yeah. is reflect reflection really of how the economy yeah, nice. is back to yep. uh, fun- functioning. And and I think yeah, which is something, right? Which is I, I think you know again if you have a lockdown you you would expect those numbers to go down. If you don't have a lockdown, <laughs> right. then you expect those numbers to go up. Right, right, right. So. Um, yeah, I think that largely telling us what you know, and maybe you know, it's I don't know. So there's there's been various thoughts, right? So it's a U-shaped recovery or a V-shaped recovery or a W-shaped recovery, and maybe it is going to take a little bit longer because if you think about the scale of um, uh, disruption, this is probably bigger than the GFC, right? So in t- in, the, in terms of the scale of disruption to normal life, yeah, um, yeah. the GFC actually did not disrupt normal life as such, right? right. It, it did impact. Money flow, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it did not impact normal life. And right. when you impact normal life, it has a lot of flow-on effects. So this is the this is the fascinating thing that I found about this particular pandemic, and I, it's a working hypothesis. I've shared it with you before. I think I probably even shared it on the podcast. But it does strike me this is a there's a you know the old two-speed economy we used to talk about back during the during the GFC. Actually, I think it was. I think when we first started talking about that, um, it seems real. We're having Nick Scarley profits through the roof. Kogan sales are profits through the roof. I own Kogan for the for the record. Um, Templar Webster through the roof. Um, premier investments I saw a, literally again a tweet as I was looking at the other one um, saying the headline is just simply Premier defies retail carnage I'll click on that and see what it says so I can, I can give us more detail well, again by the time this goes to air we'll, we'll be completely comfortable with it but there is some sense I think um, uh, we we seem to be seeing seem to be seeing a scenario where the the areas that are being hurt are getting hurt really badly the areas that aren't being touched you put it normal life it kind of impacts our normal day to day life as in what we do with our time you know, where we go but that does seem like for those, you know, those vast, vast majority of us who still have jobs where, where wages are okay, we're not spending money on travel, we're not spending money going overseas, we, we seem to still be putting the money through the, through the economy. It, it does seem like a, you know, a, a fascinating um, kind of, you know, bifurcation of the economy. So here's Premier said their full, the full year profit will be up by as much as 11% for financial 2020. Uh, despite the fact, by the way, that it closed 900 of its stores and sent home 7,000 staff. Um, so they say second half sales were down 18%, but a booming online business and stronger margins for in-demand fashion would help pump up profit. I mean, there's there's still a lot of money being slushed around. We, the headlines, you know, as you say, absolutely disproportionately impacting those service workers. They tend to, by the way, to be younger and lower paid workers. The rest of the economy... You'd be excused if you if you separated the, the country in half and said this is the people who still got jobs, these are the ones who haven't. The rest of the economy seems to be in ruddy good health. Yeah, but on Premier, I'll say that they also did, you know saved money by not paying rent. That right? helped. Right? <laughs> so so there's that. <laughs> so there are these companies that are, you know. So there are these companies that are making record profits. Yeah, they're yeah, not paying yeah, their yeah. rent, yeah. and therefore they're hurting those uh, you know those mall operators and and the shareholders of those businesses. Um, <laughs> so, uh, 
I, I think this is a lot of a lot of the things that we are seeing to me like it, it's basically weird. Yeah, uh, yeah and yeah. I, I think it's weird because again, I mean, and one scenario might be that you might have a a casual worker or a worker who was earning say twelve hundred bucks a a fortnight that actually received fifteen hundred dollars a fortnight now because of the government support. <laughs> yep. Well, now there's a three hundred dollars extra, right, right, uh, right. and plus you probably got paid for not doing any work uh, <laughs> while being at home. So you have got right, fifteen hundred dollars right. to spend. Yeah, so, yeah, right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So th- there's a, so much cash. So a lot of the stuff that we are seeing, I think, is a is um is because of the stimulus, okay. right? Yeah, yeah. And yep. as I think the real question is what happens when the stimulus goes away or the stimulus tapers off, number one. And number two is how many of those jobs that are actually gone? Because, I mean, though, it, it is un- if you have 8 9 10% unemployment, technically those people are actually not earning, right? So, I mean, that should have in due course an impact unless um, – you know, there is going to be infinite support from the government forever, right? I mean, you would expect that there's going to be a flow-on effect of that. So, uh, and yeah, so, and then you'd expect these companies that are not paying rent to pay rent at some point, unless they never want to ac- actually operate out of a out of a mall, for example, right? So, so I think it's this, you know, we are seeing these big malls report like a huge, you know, downturn in their profits. We're seeing, so I think there's this, yeah, I think there's a lot of weird things happening, largely because uh, there's government support, there's rent support, there's rent not no non-payment. <laughs> right? There's yeah, yeah. there's mortgage not pay, not not being paid as well. Well, right, if right. I don't pay the mortgage, I've got extra money in my pocket. Yeah, yeah, and sense. I might be pay you know spending that on Kogan or Temple and Webster and whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. The question is, what happens? Well, this is <laughs> this can't be the normal, right? My my real question is, what's yeah, going to yeah. happen yeah, yeah, in yeah, a few yeah, yeah. you know yeah. few months time? And no one knows, right? That's 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 exactly the challenge. We just don't know what happens, and, and that's probably the the risk. Um, I'm an optimist by nature, manage our listeners well and truly. Know, you certainly know. Um, I'm desperately hopeful that the government will do the right things and taper this at the right speed and the right time to make sure we don't just basically drop the economy in a hole. For all the good work done, if we were literally to pull the rug out now, you know what? It wouldn't only be terrible policy. It would have actually been it be made doubly worse. If you're going to pull the rug out, you might as well have done it from day one, right? And actually. T- taking the pain then to spend a hundred billion dollars and not see it through would be the absolute worst case i think of all of all the options you could have either kept a hundred billion dollars in the back pocket or spend more if you need to to keep the economy going to have kind of done some of it it's like half building a house they're knocking it down right it'd be it'd be, it'd be crazy it'd be absolutely crazy but i guess maybe it's possible yeah i mean on the on the other side the only thing i'll say is that if a business is not going to survive extending it it by keeping it on life say uh, you know like on a yeah, life, yeah. life support system yeah, yeah is basically foolish, right? Yeah, so we yeah. shouldn't be, that's basically a waste of taxpayers' money. Um, if a business is not going to survive, there's no point, you know, there must, there could be other ways of supporting people, but mm-hmm. I think supporting those businesses because they're going to, you know, die in six months' time. Yeah, yeah. Um, just doesn't make sense. So, I mean, there's got to be some um, way of, yeah, you know, ensuring that support is provided to those that are going to survive. I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's a good point. I think you would if you could. It's a bit like for me. It's a bit like you know. There's a whole lot of grief this week about. I didn't put it in the in the agenda, but we must as well talk about it. Nick Scarly and the others getting a whole lot of JobKeeper and still declaring massive dividends. And people are saying, well, hang on, you can't take money from the government and then declare dividends. It's just corporate welfare. I think it actually is that that's absolutely true on the on the on a single reading. The problem is the government didn't have a choice. They couldn't spend six months designing a perfect solution and then rolling it out slowly to make sure it wasn't you know, ill-defined. They had to sort of, it was a big bang strategy. You had to go and say, here's some cash, everybody. Yes, we know by definition, some of it will be wasted, but we have to do this because the alternative would be, let's do it slowly, carefully, and by the time we get to do it, 
the crisis is so bad, you know, we, we can't do it anymore. If, if they waited six weeks, the whole thing would have been over. So to some degree, they had to do something. I don't, I think your point is valid. I don't, I'm glad I'm not the person who's got to put that into place because I don't know how I would actually go about trying to decide which businesses deserve the money and which don't, which which employees deserve to be kept in work and which don't. It's, it's an awfully difficult thing to try and do in advance. After the fact, we can always go, oh, okay, well, those cafes went broke or those tourism businesses went broke or those manufacturing businesses went broke. See, we should have not given them the money. It's hard to know, though, in, in advance, I think, which ones will make it through and which won't. Oh, no, I, I was not criticizing the government policy at all. I, th- I think that the the you know speed of reaction mm. was good. All I'm saying, basically, is yeah. that af- at the point after six months, mm, mm, mm. Basically, after six months, if a business or eight months or whatever that time frame is, yeah. six or eight months, whatever yep, it is, yep. or nine months, if a business can't survive, yeah. it is not going to survive. Sure, sure, sure. Right? The, I will be willing to put the probability <laughs> of success of a business not surviving yeah, as yeah. very high. Yeah. Uh, because, well, you know, if you yep. couldn't, you know, your, your debts are still there, your, yeah. uh, you know, your payroll costs are still there, your fixed costs are still there, yeah. your personal costs are still there. So if the business is not going to survive, then at that point, it, you know, you basically, it's just life support. I'm not yeah. criticizing. I think the speed of action and therefore, I, and I don't even criticize the corporate corporates for, you know, if, um, if a company like Premier, for example, did not pay rent and yeah. made profit, yeah. well, that was an option available to them and they took it. Right, right, right. right? Is that wrong? Well, you know, maybe morally speaking, but is yeah. it wrong business-wise? No, right? And if their JobKeeper yeah. was available and they took it and because they satisfied the, um, the criteria mm. well, and, and therefore they didn't have to pay their employees, the government paid their employees and therefore they made more profit? Yeah. Is that wrong? No. Um, I, think, I think within the rules, they're all right, right? So I, I don't think mm. that's... My, my point really is that at some point, these companies have to be paying rent. Mm. These companies have to be paying their mortgages Mm-mm. and life needs to revert to normal. And those people who can't or those businesses that can't, well, we're basically then supporting those businesses that basically do not deserve to exist. And effectively what we are doing mm. at that point is we are, um, you know, we, we're not really running, um, we're not really running those, letting those businesses win that should win, yeah. right? And by making those businesses survive that shouldn't survive, yeah. right? And, and effectively, you're taking something from someone and giving it to somebody else. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, that, that sounds like a little, like, a little bit welfare, communism, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. then might as well just divide the pie <laughs> up equally among them, you know. Uh, take the profit from Premier and give, right, it to, right. uh, give it to, you know, the other company that didn't right, make the profit, right? right. right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, so I think that's, the, you know, I think the, the policy was fine. The, uh, the policy of tapering is also fine. Yeah. Um, the fact that, you know, Nick Scully can pay, that's good on them. Um, yeah. Two, two last thoughts just for me um, on that. Um, to some degree, the corporate welfare thing, again, like, you know, should... In a perfect world, should you have got the money? Probably not. They probably didn't need the money. On the flip side, remember, of course, that um, what people forget when they kind of take this ideological perspective is that this was to keep people in jobs. Nick Scully may well have made that money and still sacked people because they could, right? The p- part of it was, you know, companies are cutting costs. I mean, Virgin's cutting costs despite JobKeeper being there. Um, so there are companies that are literally saying, well, we're still not going to keep you in, in jobs, but it ignores the counterfactual. We can never know it. And this is the, the problem with some headline journalism and headline kind of social media kind of knee-jerk reactions is, it's fine to say, well, they got this much money and they made this much money, therefore that was going to happen anyway. What it, allow, what it doesn't allow for is, well, in a different environment, if the money wasn't available, they might have sacked 30% of their staff and still made profit. So it's partly about, you know, what would have happened otherwise. The second point for mine is, well, we talk about corporate social or corporate welfare as if the companies are getting the money and they are to some degree. The whole point was keeping people in jobs, not only because 
that was good good for the company, it's good for the economy, it's good for those people to have the jobs and the money, but otherwise they'd be on the welfare queue, right? So it's not it's not exactly a zero sum game where you know you got the situation of well, we, yeah, if we hadn't if we hadn't given the money, then you know we the taxpayer had more money, the companies wouldn't get more money. So yeah, but those people should be able to work, and they would spend less in the economy. So not only do you have the the human impact of unemployment, you've then got the remove the reduced economic activity of those people who don't have the job, don't expect they can keep the job and therefore keep spending things on what they were going to anyway. So it is that kind of, you know, the money goes around, the kind of multiplier effect, the money cycle effect of keeping people in work keeps money going through the economy. It's not just about the company that gets it or even the employee that gets it. It's the bigger picture multiplier effect that we know a dollar spent goes around the economy six or so times. You take that out, you take the employee out, it makes a massive difference to the economy. And that I think is the, the thing most people are missing when they're focusing on one worker or one company. Yeah, I think I, I, as I said, I, I think the speed was of essence. The, you know, no policy is perfect. Yeah. But it's a, it's it. If a policy does its overall job, as you said, I think that that, that means the policy was a success. And in, in at least in my view, it's not really an ideological comment. It's just no, I think right. it just yeah. it just makes yep. um, common. It is common sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, uh, it takes it takes a. <laughs> It takes a particular ideological kind of warrior to take this very pragmatic, real issue and try and make a political one out of it. You know, it, it, there's a whole lot of things we can argue about with politics in general and policy in general. In this case, if you can look at this whole thing and say, yeah, well, the policy sucks because Nick Scully got some money, it's like you're missing the entire, like that, that's kind of a forest for the trees problem, right? Yeah. And, and you know, like even, even on, on Virgin's case, like, you know, or, or, or any corporation, for example, that mm. has the ability to take JobKeeper but has decided to, um, you know, retrench some stuff. What I will say about that is, I think the business is planning for the future yep. and is planning to survive, yep. right? And it knows very well that its new shape is going to be this smaller version of its earlier self. Mm-hmm. Then probably taking that pain early on is good for the business overall because yeah. it's not accruing liabilities in terms of leave and all these other right, things. that right. It would, right. So there's overhead costs associated with keeping people. Um, now, it's unfortunate for those people. But at the same time, I think... It, you know, maybe there should have been another mechanism that okay, you know, you could have got this, so maybe the government is actually makes that money available to you anyways. Yeah. Uh, whether it's like job seeker, job keeper, actually, whatever it is. Yeah. I actually, I think, I think they probably used it because they felt like that was the only way to get this money to people quickly. Yeah. But I completely agree with you. I actually, I, I've said before, I think maybe on the podcast, certainly on Twitter, um, I actually think we should have tried a universal basic income. I think if we we're going to ever do it, the time to do it was now pay everyone X dollars, and then if they will put, let go, they'll let go. If they kept their job, they kept their job. It, just, it, just, it was a better mechanism to get, as you say, people, because that, that frees up people to go and join different companies, right? Rather than remaining employed by the cafe that's going to go out of business in six months, as you say, they could know they could know they'd still get the money if they left that company and went to a different business that was growing, like an online retailer, for example. Um, you know, you could make that move with much less friction. Yeah, and in this particular case, like, you know, from Virgin's point of view, they basically, if they thought that, you know, they had, 20,000 employees and now they're going to have 5,000. Well, it's good for those 5,000 who are going to stay to know which those 5,000 right. are and it's right. good for those 15,000 that are not going to stay to know which, Correct. who they Correct. are. Yes. And, yep. and you know, and there's going to be alternative opportunities for those other people yep. in the economy. Yep. So I, I think, you know, that it's, again, it's, it's easy to fault but I mean, what would Virgin do? Like, I mean, you know, there are no planes flying. It yeah. has to pay all this rent. You know, it has got all this cost. It has to figure out a model that's going to work uh, when, you know, things start to normalize. That was a long and tangent-filled diversion from the SOMP, but it was hopefully useful. I, I certainly enjoy chatting to you about it, mate. So hopefully our listeners enjoyed it as well. But let's change gears entirely from those businesses suffering and struggling and maybe making it through or maybe not to some of the businesses that just seem to think, well, what pandemic? Motley Fool Money. 
Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. And those businesses, of course, mate, are our tech titans. When I say our, I mean the Globe's tech titans because the NASDAQ, the tech-heavy NASDAQ index or composite index, as I call it, it was up 2.6% overnight. So we're recording this Thursday morning, as we always do on the 13th of August, up 2.6% overnight. It is now 16% above its pre-crisis high. Now, that's worth commenting on for a couple of reasons. One is, man, like... (laughs) We've just talked about some GDP numbers in here around the world. I haven't got the US GDP numbers in front of me, but they're also reasonably ordinary. So, so the economy is in recession, literally recession, not even struggling, in recession. Not only has the tech sector recovered the losses of March, not only was it up 2.6% overnight, the gain since March is one and a half times the average year stock market gain in the space of effectively six months. There's, We've talked about this a little bit before, but I... I kind of had to bring it back up because I'm finding this kind of I, I, I'm I'm look I, I'm always happiest man I'm, I'm a bit of a contrarian and I, I I'm not happy when the markets are down per se but I always feel most confident when the markets are down because as an optimist I know I, I, well I, again I'm not allowed to say I know anything in this industry because ASIC will come and get me I'm very 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 sure when the markets are down everyone's depressed I think it's a, I'm always happy because I know or I believe I, I expect. The market will come back and there's money to be made, right? When, the, when the, In the middle of March, I was saying to people, go and buy. Not because I knew what was happening next, but because I knew or I believed over the long term, it would be, represent a great time to buy. When anything is up this much, particularly in such bad news, and yes, there are reasons why you could say the tech should be up or might be up or whatever, it just worries me, mate. I, I, so let's assume the businesses are maybe okay, maybe even better than they were. Even then, for the market to be paying up for these sort of prices when there's economic uncertainty, when you know there are, there are some really great businesses, but they're on sky-high multiples. Some of the price gains are, are well in excess of profit gains. There is, I don't know, there feels like a lot of optimism, a lot, a lot of exuberance in the tech sector right now. Am I, am I being just Debbie Downer and kind of you know finding, finding problems where there are none, or is there genuinely some reason to at least be mindful of what investors are doing right now? Well, I mean, you know, some of the big tech companies reported um, uh, numbers that were, you know, by by any standard, superb, right? I mean, they had growth, they had billions of free cash flow, they have billions on their balance sheet. So, I mean, um, I don't know. Like, I mean, to me, it seems like, you know, those businesses are just doing fine. In, in many ways, like, you know, te- if you work from home, you need tech, so tech, businesses enjoyed that if you are you know forced to stay at home and you can't go to the shops then you use e-commerce so those e-commerce businesses are doing yeah, fine yeah. Um, if if you use uh, if, you're, if you're working from home and you have to use technology then then that technology is probably you know some cloud-based technology and then those cloud-based companies or the providers of those cloud services they are likely to do um, you know well so so I think those factors, mm-hmm. I think the other factors that I saw, that, you know, it's, so there's been a steady improvement in the un- unemployment numbers in the U.S. That's the other one. I've seen some, there's been some um, early indicators of inflation uh, in the July numbers. Is So there's been some positive news out there. Is it is it enough? I don't know. Um, I don't know. Like, I mean, mm. um, e- at the very least, I think you can say that the tech businesses are definitely probably the most resilient yeah. businesses 
out there yep. today, yep. right? Um, you know what? In fact, you know maybe this is a separate debate, but I mean, <laughs> um, in fact, what I think people think as resilient businesses actually as not as resilient. Whereas what mm. you know what people think of tech as uh, stuff that can be disrupted very quickly. Right. Um, well, if you're if you're a tech behemoth, then probably you're not going to be disrupted very quickly, mm. and you are so resilient. You're probably resilient. Much more than you know what was yesteryear's blue chip resilient company. So I think that some mm-hmm. of that mm-hmm. is getting reflected in in numbers. You know, my resilience. That I so I actually completely agree with that point. But I have to say, like people have made the mistake with blue chips in the past, mm-hmm. resilience, in, i.e., downside protection. If if that's what most people think of by resilience, you know, Woolies is resilient because people are always going to need groceries. For example, it's one of those quotes you hear that justifies some downside protection, but doesn't justify paying very, very high multiples or certainly much higher prices over, over the last six months, for example, or even 12 months than, than we're being paid. Um, yeah, I, my, my concern with this one, again, I, I don't claim any expertise or even any deep research on this, but I worry a little bit that the safe haven, in air quotes, stocks are absolutely tech. You're, you're dead right. But the fact that people are running them in such great numbers does make me concerned a little bit that maybe we might get into a bit of an overpaying kind of thing. Like I own Amazon, I own Google. So, um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm stocks I own, by the way. So I, I'm not very good at self-interest. I'd rather talk about the, the reality than the pretending and trying to pump up my own stocks. I would worry that people are paying price for Amazon and Google that might reflect far more their, their sentiment and their emotion than the underpinnings of the businesses themselves. Yeah, so here's like, okay, so I'll use Alphabet as an example. I mean, you know, mm. people are paying right now, so Alphabet or, or, or the parent company of Google, uh, people are paying on a trailing basis 33 mm. times earnings. Is yeah. that a lot for a business like Alphabet? I don't know. Like, I mean, this is if only goes like 8 or 10% a year. I mean, that, that's what I mean. It's like, and, uh, you know, when it was 25 times, that's kind of reasonable. At some point, maybe even 33 is okay now, but when does it, where does it stop, right? If, if the NASDAQ doesn't grow anymore from here, then we're saying everything's reasonably priced and we're getting market average returns from here. What worries me is the prices are factoring so much good news and no bad news. Yeah, like I don't like. I mean, so if if you look at different stocks, I mean, if if you are going to be investing in stocks, then mm. what stock would you buy right now? Like, I mean, if you have to choose yeah. to buy something, yeah. Yeah. what are you going to buy? Yeah. Um, you know, as I, you know, my famous example is that people buy. You know, people pay thirty times earnings for Woolworths. Yeah, that should sell at fifteen times. I earnings, agree. Totally, right. Yeah. But it does for exactly the same reasons, though, I think. I mean, right. if you look at the super... So Woolies, Coles, and West Farms are all hitting highs or, or reasonably close to record highs. I think for the same reason. It's the Australian version of exactly the same thing, which is we don't want to be in scary stuff. Let's go to the stuff we're not scared by. And that can end up... As you say, I, I agree with you on Woolies. You're paying too much, but I don't know that's necessarily an either-or. I yeah, think so so I, I, look, I look at markets as people have a choice of investing in different stocks and I yep. actually look at it in the market as one whole thing right yep. and if if I think people are paying 35 times right now I'm just checking for uh, Woolworths yep. then I would say that investors have just gone bonkers and if they are paying 30 times or 33 times for Alphabet then you know if, if you have in, 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 in if you're a stock investor it's basically a relative investing game right you're investing you have a fixed amount of dollars to invest you either invest in XYZ or ABC right and if you've got those choices yeah well, it, it still looks to me that tech is actually cheaper than non-tech because a lot of the non-tech right. that people are investing in today yep. um, 
super expensive. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, they are, they, you know, you can't justify them in any sort of valuation framework. To be devil's advocate, though, the, Google and Woolies are two companies out of the, let me guess, probably 7,000 options between the US and the Australian markets. Um, I mean, you're right. If, you, if you're going to my head, which one of those do you want to buy? I'm buying Google every day. I completely agree with that point. That being said, I, if we fast forward 12, 18 months, and if tech is currently overvalued, it may not be to your point. So let's, but, you know, just to play out the, the, the scenario for a second. I, can't, I just have to believe there are other businesses out there that will do better just in, in total share price return terms. You know, it's not a worse or, or Google issue. It's kind of like a, there must be something out there worth buying. If if Google underperforms the market, then by definition, something will have overperformed because the average is the average. You know, is, is now the time to be looking a little bit contrarian, not necessarily outside tech in necessarily in total. I know you're a tech guy. So I'm not saying tech's not touchable at all. I, I'm, I'm happily recommending and buying tech. We, we recommended, we both recommended a stock actually recently, the same company as it turns out over the last couple of months, which is absolutely in the tech space, but we're actually reasonably priced. I'm just wondering whether the big tech and the big Australian safe stuff, to your point, both of those, we can bracket those together as the, the no-brainer stocks <laughs> right now that people assume is a no-brainer or, or call no-brainers. Maybe they actually are brainers. Maybe they're, maybe they're not no-brainers after all. Maybe there are. We should be looking elsewhere for better value. Yeah. So, like my, you know, my favorite investment is typically uh, a growth mm. investment investment that has some contrarian uh, bits to it. But those are mm, harder mm. to find. Like, so Google is what I call the consensus stock, right? Mm-hmm. Every growth manager yeah. owns Google. Right, um, it's unlikely that you're going to get any multiple arbitrage out of something like Google. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. you know because you know pretty much every growth manager who owns Google. Right? <laughs> so often you can get much higher returns um, by finding a growth stock mm-hmm. that most growth managers don't own because they're eventually mm-hmm. going to own it. Right, I mean that's market psychology. Right, so yeah, yeah, yeah. part of what yeah, you're totally. pa- partly saying is true yep. that you know are you going to get? But here's the problem. For these multiples to shrink substantially, like yep. if the multiple could stay the same, as long as the earnings is go, going yes. to go up, yes, yes, your, yes, your yes. stock is going to be fine in terms Correct. of return, Correct. right? And for these multiples to shrink, what you need is all of these growth managers who think Google is the stock to own yeah. do not own it. Right, right, right. So then are the growth managers who own the stock are going to actually own Woolies? Probably not, yeah. right? Yeah. So I, I think that's the psychology here, right? I mean, I personally don't own Google for exactly mm-hmm. that reason that I've always thought that, you know, there's a better stock out there to own because people don't think of it as like the inevitable mm-hmm stock to own right um does that mean that i would say it's not a good buy it's a good buy i mean you know and it was cheaper substantially cheaper maybe uh a year back when we were selling at like you know 25 times earnings and and we've talked about it many times (laughs) in the podcast so i mean part of that the i think the other thing to realize here is the multiples have moved back up largely because there's now realization that you know the um the interest rates Mm. are likely to stay close to zero for a long time if they're going to stay close to zero for a long time then that naturally pushes valuation um, it's like what I'm not a big fan of is I am not going to be buying um, like what I call the rebound stock mm. and the reason I don't buy the rebound stock is a that is not my style and mm. B I don't really know when they're going to rebound, right? So I mean, rebounds, a fantastic rebound stock would be to buy an airline stock, okay? Mm. Buy um, buy the airline stock, wait for the travels to open up, and then, you know, you could sell on the multiple expands yeah, yeah, because yeah. of earnings, right? But for that, you need many things to work out for you. You need A, you need travel to get back up. You need the airlines to make sure that they can actually run through this crisis without, you know, further debt, further equity, further dilution, God knows what else, <laughs> and before going bankrupt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, all of, you know, 
so I mean, in in a slate, if <laughs> is it the safe trade? Probably Google has always been the safe trade, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. You know, uh, yeah. um, <laughs> so and and now the other safe trade I, t- I tell people is Amazon. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, it's a safe trade. People buy Amazon because well, you know, yeah, it's Amazon. Amazon. Yeah, right. You know? exactly. uh, and yeah. you know, if you're a growth manager, you don't own Amazon. Well, then you know, too bad. Mm-hmm. You <laughs> why don't you own Amazon? People, are, it's the Amazon is the new IBM in, in many ways in that sense. Yeah. So it's hard to at that at some point with those stocks mm-hmm. to get substantial. Um, outperformance, but mm. you could still get market outperformance because the market is dominated by, you know, things like you know, oil and gas companies, travel companies, you know, entertainment companies, mm, mm. a lot of old school companies that are hurting right now, and they're going to continue to hurt for a long time because they're going to be diluting. Yeah. They're going to be, you know, taking on more debt. Eventually, they have to pay that debt. So, I don't know. Mate, let's um, let's let's come back from from forecasting. That's a fascinating conversation. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. Um, I still remain slightly concerned, but maybe not as concerned as I was before we started talking. So thank you for that. <laughs> Happy with my Google and Amazon shares than I was than I was half an hour. If ago. you're concerned, you should sell them, right? <laughs> I, to your point, though, is where, where else are you investing? I'm. I'm not. I have lots of good recommendations that I can give you. <laughs> Previously, I've given you recommendations. Oh, you have no, not followed here them. Here we go. Um, but you could, oh, and you would have made some I'll money. Let, I'll edit this but, out later. But it's all right. But but that's okay. It's your choice. <laughs> you don't like money. That's your problem. Speaking of not liking money, mate, let me. I'm trying to desperately get a segue to get out of this. Um, Commonwealth Bank, we've got to talk about that. Uh, this week, profits, cash profit was down 11%. The statutory profit was up, but don't get too excited about that. Anyone can make a profit if you're selling assets, so we, we're going to ignore that one. Statutory profit was up at 12 The cash profit was down 11%, more than the market expected. Now, CBA managed to pay a dividend that was more than the market expected as well, so on the good side. But it did it by, again, those aforementioned asset sales, and it paid out 49.95% of its earnings, which is exactly 0.05% less than the RBA, or sorry, than APRA said they were allowed to. This is a pretty well-managed result, and I mean that in both senses of the term. They've done a decent job to get it. They've also managed it very carefully and closely to give investors exactly what the bank thinks they need or want. Those dividends can't be sustained next year, mate, at the current level unless they find something else to sell. So is this the last hurrah for the CBA dividend for quite a few years to come? Yeah, well, I think there's a new baseline being set for the dividend is what I would say for right, CBA. Okay. Um, so, they're, they're, yeah, I mean, the next year's numbers are going to be pretty bad. <laughs> well, next half's number is going to be pretty bad. Yeah, right. After right? um, and I don't, I don't want to make a prediction beyond the next half, but next half is going to be really bad. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, um, APRA has basically said what fifty percent. I mean, they, you know, they basically paid fifty percent, very close to fifty percent of the statutory profit, which yeah, included, yeah. as you said, sale of businesses. Um, unless they can sell something else, they wouldn't have um, you know that kind of statutory profit. But you know, maybe what they're counting on is um, the regular uh, the regulators to actually remove the requirement, and they can go back to paying everything that they have again, or more than everything, they can borrow from the market and pay. I, mean, I, guess, right? I guess that would be their point, right? To some degree, the app is making them keep cash, yeah, which puts them in a better position for more dividends, or at least. As you say, both both it resets the baseline and they're kind of like, well, we would have given this, we, you know, the other 40% we haven't paid out, they normally pay 90, 95% of earnings. So they're like, well, we've now kind of got two years worth of dividends. One we paid out, one we've got up our sleeve now because we can pay next year's dividend from this year's retained cash if we chose to. Um, to some degree, APRA's kind of helping them be more responsible and, and kind of a better long-term stewards, aren't they? Yeah, well, if, if you know, uh, I think for the banks to operate like their trusts, 
I think is wrong in my yeah. view. Like yeah. so, the banks basically here have been operating like trust, and when they can't behave like a trust, they basically just borrow money or or they raise <laughs> equity and pay like you know. Yeah, so other banks have yeah, done that, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, which is completely bizarre that investors actually support it. But um, yeah, there should be some. Like banks are important to the society, and therefore there should be some way of regulating the bank, saying, "Well, look, mm. you know, if you made X amount of that cash profit, you can only pay maybe up to sixty percent of that, yeah, right. or seventy percent of that, uh, and not pay like one hundred and five percent of that yep. uh, back to your shelves. It's not like you know they're not a unit, they're not a trust that they have to. It's not yeah. a pass through mechanism, and yeah. they should be yeah. holding, um, you know, some capital back. So that's my view, but. That's fair. That's fair. I um, yeah, I, I think this is this is I won't say high water mark because it's down on last year, but you know to some degree that cash would have been. I mean, if I just do the maths really simply, mate, right? Profit's down eleven percent. Cash profit's up twelve. So there's a twenty three percent gap between the two. That effectively means the dividend should have been at fifty percent of profit, another twenty ish percent lower than it actually was paid out. That's the real level of earnings now. As you say, maybe CBS hoping things bounce back. They make a bit of cash profit next year so they can keep that cents per share level of dividend, maybe on a higher cash profit basis. But it's not the most conservatively run operation, I don't think, at the moment. And I, I have to say, you know, I, I'm kind of glad APRA out there. I've, I was on record, I think we might have said previously, if I was APRA, I wouldn't have let them pay this 50%. I would have said, guys, this thing still could, could still get worse. We've talked a little bit about the possibility of that already. Giving them carte blanche, say, yeah, knock yourselves out, pay it 50%, who cares? I'm like, you know what? If you thought it was re- if you thought it was reasonable enough to restrict dividends in the first place, I would have waited. I have to say, I think jeopardizing the financial system. And I don't mean to overstate that; it's not high probability. But the whole idea of not paying dividends was to support the strength of the system. To let go of the reins in August <laughs> feels very early to me. Yeah, like I don't know. Like I mean, but as you said, right? I mean, they have to they have to manage both sides of the coin yep. which is what they're doing so I mean you know from a management standpoint I guess they're fine I don't know I I would not buy CBS shares so <laughs> no me either <laughs> but let's talk about another couple of reported this week mate we, we're getting August is great because we had a lot of kind of insights into some of the companies that are around we, we won't talk about them all on this podcast we'll try and cover a few this week two that's had a few things in common were Seek and Transurban these are businesses that have things in common like they're very 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 highly regarded businesses Generally speaking, we would have said previously, maybe we would still say, uh, very high quality businesses that we like a lot. They're kind of modern blue chips if there are any, certainly transurban. I mean, we talk about toll booth businesses as, as, as an you know, analogous as a metaphor for everything else. This is literally a toll booth business. It clips a ticket every time a car drives down the road. Um, these are supposed to be some of the best businesses in the country, yet both of them turned in really significant losses. Yeah, like I mean, um, so so I feel bad for Transurban, right? I mean, <laughs> the the number of scenarios in which your traffic through your toll uh, roads drops to near, you know, f- drops drastically by 50, 60, 70 percent. Right, right, right. What else do you do? <laughs> well, but I mean, you know, on if you yeah, were modeling that, yeah, what yeah. is the probability of that happening globally? <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty low. Yeah, <laughs> very, very low. I agree. So, so, uh, and, Mind you, you've, you've taken the long handle some companies that didn't have enough cash to be prepared for situations like yeah, this. Well, you can't let trends open off the hook that easy. No, 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 no. I'm not letting <laughs> them off. But I think from a modeling point of view, yeah, yeah. like the cyclicality of that business, yeah. like, I mean, we know the numbers go up and down in terms of how, you know, traffic is flowing, mm. the economy is feeling good, but we wouldn't, 
I think their modelers or whoever, you know, <laughs> is doing the modeling for them wouldn't have predicted and couldn't have predicted that their traffic would fall this yeah. drastically yeah. and assigned any decent probability to it, right? Yeah. Um, so there's that. I mean, for a company like Seek, on the other hand, though, I mean, we would expect that Seek's um, income would fluctuate somewhat mm-hmm. with the economy because, I mean, if you if you ex- accept that the economy is going to have, and, and Seek has global exposure as well, so if you expect that, you know, certain economies are doing well, certain economies are not doing well, um, economies have the periods where they shrink, um, you would expect that Seek would have, I mean, I would not have expected Transurban to have the problem that they have. Mm. I could have expected that Seek uh, would have more volatility uh, just because, you know, like mm-hmm. we know that th- there is cyclicality of the economy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the economy has yeah, exactly. you know, periods yeah, of booms and busts, right? right? And but Seek you, is super leveraged to both of those, right? When the recovery comes, Seek will fly. It will fly, yeah. absolutely, yeah, yeah. right? So, I mean, the Transurban one it definitely takes people, would take people, or at least took me by surprise. Um, what Again, I'm not a big fan of, as I've said, like I'm not a big fan of paying out stuff that you don't have. So if you take out debt to and use that, and you don't have income, right? You're taking out debt for some other reason to build something, that's fine. But if you're if you're taking out debt and then using half of the debt to pay income, um, then it's a problem. If you're, if you're taking out uh, issuing equity and then using some of that to actually pay um, mm-hmm. dividends, that's a problem in my view. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I guess for transfer, the main thing would be that the, the model works like that, right? I mean, you would have to take debt to build those roads, then you yeah, expect those roads to be maybe. paid. Yeah, you pay. could just raise a lot of capital to build those roads as well. I mean, there is something of the financial engineering about that. You know, they take debt to maximise the. It strikes me as like it's you know with the whole Taleb idea of anti-fragile, right? Yeah. The, the, you you maximise your returns by taking on a truckload of debt because if you can like like everything, right? If I if I could put down a dollar rather than ten dollars to do something and get the same upside, of course I'd rather commit less capital, but that makes it much more fragile in times like this. Even if they are unexpected, when they happen. You know, this this is this is optimized to within an inch of its life, right? Make it made a Sydney Airport was has made something like a dollar worth of earnings in the last ten years and paid out something like three bucks in dividends um, because you know because of that debt. I mean, this is this is absolutely financially engineered to within an inch of its life. It kind of you know it's it. These are the circumstances that were always going to cause trouble. Now, maybe we shouldn't. Maybe, maybe you can never forecast them. Maybe in, in a dozen different universes, turns out it never gets in trouble, and the share price is triple right now. And you know, I look like an idiot for being chicken little, but they, you know, we, we've seen plenty of this happen before, where people take a few too many risks and just leave themselves exposed when something goes against them. Yeah, like so. I mean, yeah. So I mean, a couple of things here. One is that if debt is so cheap, then it makes sense to use debt, right, for to be mm. long long-lasting assets mm. and then may, i guess the question really is how do you have what sort of covenants do you have on those uh, on that mm. debt mm. Uh, you know secured against those long-lasting assets it'd be uh, that would mm. be the mm. the question i think to think about yeah um i i, I don't have an issue with debt as such mm. because you know there's cost of there's going to be cost of capital how you raise the capital is, sure. is the these the other question but uh, you you could of course be leveraged over leveraged and the question is where they over leveraged yeah. or not I, I don't I don't know Transurban that well um, it's not a company that I would buy or hold <laughs> uh, I would recommend in 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 my service <laughs> or I would own in my own portfolio so <laughs> I, I, I reserve judgment I can see mm-hmm. how just as a model I see how the model is attractive yeah and and the model can be super attractive if it is 
if it is financed properly, it's like you know, it's like buying a house, right? I mean, you can you can buy the house with one hundred twenty percent debt, uh, or you could buy the house with fifty percent debt. They're two different things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and they can have different outcomes and different scenarios. So, mm-hmm. I think that's uh, I think that's worth um, I think that's worth highlighting. I still think that. Businesses are taking too much risk. You, you got stuck in a cochlea for not having enough cash on hand. Come on, let's, let's not be too kind of transurban here. Yeah, so like, I mean, so this is a general, I think, corporate <laughs> problem across what I call blue chip Australian companies. I think they really need to take, either they can, they can ask, they can take lessons from me if they want to, or if not, they should really go to business school, back to business school, because <laughs> really, like, I mean, I just can't understand how a company can have a market capitalization, and I know market capitalization is probably not the right way to look at it, but you know, market capitalization is really reflective of you know how big your business is. If your market capitalization is two billion dollars or three billion dollars or four billion dollars or even one billion dollars, and if you have like you know thirty million dollars of cash in your bank, mm. that basically means you're just running a mom and pop operation, like just a bigger <laughs> version of mom and pop. It's well, like it turns out got debt, not even not even any cash. Yeah, like, I mean, get so, so like I mean, you know, and, and the <laughs> same thing I said with Cochlear and uh, and uh, you know there are other companies I can I can you know if if you don't have the capability um, to foot a bill. <laughs> <laughs> because you're going to just go, you know, uh, go tap on the equity market. I, I think it's just that's just a bad show in my view. So, like, I think there's a room for debt if if the debt is used appropriately and the debt has got you know the appropriate covenants and things like that. Um, you got to have some cash in your balance sheet as well, uh, just just to take care of incidentals. Um, and you, you just can't expect that the markets. <coughs> The reason I say that you can't, you shouldn't expect the market, is that what if the market freezes at that point? If you have like you know thirty million dollars on your balance sheet and you need hundred million, oh totally, yeah, that's right. You're like toast yep. completely. Yep. Your Absolutely. business is basically out of business, yep. right? So it's just bad management, you know. And and maybe that's just free lesson for all the CEOs listening to this thing. So you know, uh, think about your balance sheet, please. Yep, nice. Um, I think that's true. Like as you say, six seek. We should have expected. It's just one of those things that is cyclical by definition. Look, I think I just want our listeners to know that there was a time when these so-called utility stocks were the safe stocks because they didn't actually have that much debt, right? They were literally built using mostly equity, little tiny bits of debt sometimes, but they aren't your grandfather's utility stocks, right? These aren't the these aren't the sleepy energy generators or you know whatever of of the old days. These are leveraged up to absolutely financial engineer the hell out of them. Um, great for the government, by the way. Great for the taxpayer because that's how it happened. As investors, I think we should be a little bit careful that we don't look at those businesses, as I have been guilty of doing in the past, saying, well, it's transurban, it's a toll booth business. Of course, you can send that much debt. Um, you know, Not allowing for the fact that things can get tougher for unexpected reasons, I think is something that really could potentially damage an investor's portfolio, particularly if you own these sorts of stocks. Sydney Airport raised $2 billion recently, same thing. Uh, it was always supposed to be fine until it wasn't. Again, not unreasonable in the assumptions on a business as usual kind of basis, but that's kind of the point. I kind of can't help feel if, if we ran our businesses more like family companies, i.e., you know, would you would you jeopardize your families if you if this was your personal balance sheet? If you if all you owned as a as a family was transurban the transurban business, would you carry that much debt and run the risk of being insolvent at some point if something went wrong? I'm pretty sure you wouldn't. And I, I think to some degree if we just were a little more thoughtful about that as a um, uh, yeah, just if, if we were a little more conservatively run, as you say, about Cockley having more cash on, on the books or Transurban having a little less debt, I think that would make sense. I think as investors, if you're looking for safe stocks, and we talked about that already today, um, just be, be mindful of the balance sheet is all I probably would say. Yeah, I think that's good advice. Mate, let's go. See, what's your segue? Ready? Speaking of balance sheets... 
Hey, hey, see what That's it is. That's a segue. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll cut this out later. Um, <laughs> Lyft. So many Australians don't know Lyft, or if they've heard of it, they're kind of vaguely aware of it. This is the US only competitor of Uber. Uber, of course, global. Lyft concentrated in the US. Now, if you give people rides in your car and fewer people are out the streets and going to work, you'd expect that to be bad. You wouldn't expect it to be this bad. Seek, oh, sorry, Seek, am I going? Lyft lost $6.5 million per day over the last quarter. Every time they turn the lights on and then turn the lights back off at the end of the day, $6.5 million disappeared from the bank account. I, I, I try to visualize this. There's kind of some gushing geyser of cash, just maybe a river, maybe it's just kind of, you know, there's, there's, this, there's a spring somewhere where the cash just goes up and then just floats away. <laughs> can, you imagine, can you imagine a watch? Six million dollars a day go missing. It's call it eight hundred thousand dollars an hour. What's that? I don't know. That's one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a minute. I, literally, if you're watching it disappear, you, you could always have one of those. You know, there's big tally boards where this number just gets lower and lower and lower and lower. You couldn't keep up with it. it I mean, we talk about you know numbers like you know, round off to millions and billions as if they don't matter. But six and a half million dollars every single day disappeared. Six hundred million over the quarter. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I have a point. It was more just the sheer size of that. Now, if you annualize it, you get to you know two point four billion dollars. Um, that's a lot. Um, now, again, maybe it doesn't get that bad because um, you know maybe maybe things don't last for that long. But there are some serious businesses. You mentioned before businesses that are going to go broke, and you're talking more about coffee shops and other things. But I mean, we've seen so much capital raising here in Australia. No reason to highlight the US businesses other than Lyft was one of those poster children businesses. I'm a little bit mindful of what this might actually do for VC funding and private equity funding in those businesses that are still reasonably early stage, reasonably big futures. But man, you put you talk about the equity market tap drying up. At least a cochlear or a transurban has a business, have some sort of underlying profitability. You can see a, you can see a time when it might make money. Are these higher risk businesses going to start struggling to raise cash? Um, I don't know. Like, I mean, I was just, I, I actually don't follow Lyft closely enough. That number is pretty staggering. That So, I Isn't mean, it? I was just, the, the thing I was looking at. But here's the thing with Lyft, though, yeah. right? Um, if you compare Lyft with, say, Transurban, for example, right? Lyft has cash of $2.7 mm. and total debt of only $500 million. It's mm. significantly better capitalized than, you know, and it's not a statement about the business quality, but yeah. I think it's just significantly better capitalized compared to many other businesses that have just debt up the wazoo, yeah. right? So um, um, I would say the Lyft wouldn't have any problems. Really, I mean, if Transurban has no problems raising debt and if Sydney Airport has no problems raising <laughs> debt, I'm sure <laughs> Lyft can uh, raise debt or find some capital. Um, is that good use of know, capital? I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to say it's. I'm going to say it's a, a, a. You know, Lyft is not yet a proven business, right? The the, the likes of Transurban, there is a business model there. We know fewer cars are driving. They'll be back on the. They'll be back on the roads. Uh, this is a much more mature, proven, stable, understood business. The side sort of funding that Lyft needs to get are, you know, it's very much the risk kind of um, risk adjusted cash that VC funds are throwing around. I would have thought it's a different audience with different expectations. I don't know. So I would say that, you know, like, I mean, I would say that um, um, Lyft is well established, mm. understood. It's not uh, profitable, though. <laughs> well, but, yeah, but it's, you know, like, I mean, is, is uh, I mean, what type of profit does Transurban really have? It's got lots of debt. <laughs> it's a debt it's a debt-ridden uh, box true, true. of uh, roads, right? Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's a very old school business full of debt. <laughs> the same thing I can say of, you know, what is, I mean, how does, how do, I, I mean, you know, the thing is that if, mm. I think they're different companies, right? So, in one version of the world, yeah. Lyft would have lots of growth. 
if Lyft wants to be profitable, I think it can be instantly profitable. Right. It just has to forego. Well, there's no one actually yeah, but not, the cars. Not true, but that, I, mean, I mean, the same is true for Transurban, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if basically Transurban can't grow, right. Sydney Airport definitely can't grow, yeah, yeah. right? So those are like what I call dead businesses, right? right They're effectively right. dead because they can't grow. It's right. like Woolies. It Which can't is not grow. really dead, but in the dock yeah, world. Yeah, but it's like dead. in the dock world. Like they, they're, just, they're just dead businesses. They, they, yep, they yep, just don't yep. grow. Yep. They're just going to be like, you know, this thing that makes some money, which is going to take a lot of debt from somewhere, right, right. you know, debt up to the wazoo yep. type of business. Yep. So, I mean, this business has no debt. Like, I mean, if I look at the balance sheet, I said yeah. this is significantly superior business than uh, Transurban or whatever. Like, I yeah. mean, you know, Transurban is not making money. These guys are not making These guys can make money if they decide to not grow. So, yeah. I think, you know, I think I'd separate that aspect. Okay. You know, that said, I mean, the, the thing would be with Lyft is the future is uncertain for Lyft. Mm-hmm. The, That's the bit I mean. Yeah. And if, you, if, you're, if your job is to allocate small amounts of VC capital to the best ideas you've got, it does start to change the story at some level, right? If, you, if you're looking at a Beyond Meat and a Lyft and a SpaceX and a, I don't know, I'm just picking names. You know, at some point you're going to say, well, Lyft looked pretty good a while ago, but man, like... You know, short term, long term. How long does this last? How much cash do I burn? Do I have to give it twice as much now so it makes it through the other side? What does that do to the ROI I'm looking for? It does. It does start to change some VC minds, at least on the board, on the margins. I would have thought. Yeah, which is why Lyft is now a public company. Yes, right. Right. So I mean, you know, and SpaceX is a private company, yes, and yes. Lyft is a private company, right? Yeah. Uh, a public company. You know what I mean? So, I'm, I'm not, yeah. not talking about those so, secret business. Just throw yeah, out some. But money. I mean, the, the, if you're if you're a VC, you could, you've got a choice of more options to put your money in the, than you have. Absolutely, money. absolutely. And a VC would not be putting an, a money into Lyft or or Uber. In fact, VC is getting out mm. of things like Uber, and that's absolutely true. And which is you know, so they will come to the public market there'll be enough number of suckers on the public market willing to like i mean you know every time so every i mean you think about it this way right when when cochlear said oh i've got a fine to pay i need some money people yep. pointed yep. up cash right yep. or when some company said oh i need to pay some dividend but i actually got no money can you please give me some cash so that i can pay you some dividend or the other guys some dividend people yep. pointing up money so i'm sure if lyft goes to the market and says hey i'm gonna have this beautiful future uh pony up some cash i'm sure people will pony up some cash so it's like that right and and, yeah. and and this story can continue until it does not, right? Uh, I suppose that's so that, true. That's, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's capital <laughs> somewhere sitting there to, you know, show up. So I wouldn't be worried that, you know, I would worry about profitability of the future, but I would not worry uh. about capital showing up um, because, you know, as we know, capital shows up. <laughs> it does, it does. Mate, we've got time for one very quick question before we finish. And I'm going to put this one today because I'm going to keep our Sunday mailbag a little kind. And Michael, he wasn't very kind. Michael wasn't kind? Well, so I'll let, let me let me read you this as if I was reading it for the first time. It okay. says, Hi, Scott. Love the mailbag episodes in the dock. Scott, you're all right. <laughs> this sounds very kind to me. It does. Yeah. To you. To me, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael, take a good hard look at yourself, dude. Come on. Be fair. I'm a person. I've got feelings. I promise. I'm all right. Fair to <sighs> Anyway, so he says, look, got I, See, Michael, I'm, I'm a nice... You know how a nice bloke I am? And answer your question anyway. I could have deleted it. I could have sent it and arrive. I could have blamed the interwebs. But no, no, I'll do the right thing because I'm that sort of guy, even though I'm only all right. All right. He says, got my crystal ball out and it's telling me there are there'll be another dip in the market worse than Marsh Falls. Wow. I'm on 80% cash at the moment and 20% ETFs. What would you do if you're in my shoes? He says in brackets, my strategy is to purely invest in growth stocks. On one of your podcasts, one of your guests mentioned that the ASX is for income and US stocks are for growth. I've never said that exactly, but you might have you might have said that. I think I didn't, I didn't you, may, say you may have that. inferred that. 
I didn't even say that. But okay, anyway. well, let's, 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 let's continue with that line of He thought. says, in saying that, should I go all in in the US? He says, appreciate your podcast. And Michael, this is the only reason you get your question asked because he finished with the hashtag, get doc on Tinder, I mean Insta. So, yeah, exactly. You redeemed yourself, Michael. Lucky, <laughs> lucky, mate, because it's a good hashtag work there. Well done. Uh, so, yes, Michael, just be, be kind, but the hashtags will get you over the line. All right. Um, I've got some more good hashtags, by the way, for Sunday's mailbag. <laughs> our, listeners are, our listeners are inventive when it comes to the hashtags. I love this. I lo- well, this. Uh, I don't know if my wife listens to this, what she will think about it. Mate, so, if your wife's like my wife, she's never listened to this before in her life. That's true. There's got to be bad things our wives have to yeah, listen yeah, to yeah, us. Absolutely. They absolutely. hear us from us during the week. Yeah. All right. So, so with, with Michael's with Michael's life, hashtag get doc on Tinder. I'm in Insta. Um, so, uh, there's kind of two parts of his question, right? On one hand, he says I'm all in growth stocks. The other hand, he's in 80% cash. It, it strikes me, and we can't give Michael specific uh, personal advice, of course, as with all of our questions. It does seem a little bit to me um, that he's kind of got a foot in both camps. There is some sort of cognitive dissonance there. I'm a growth stock investor, but I'm 80% in cash. Um, I mean, I get he wants to wait and time the market. I, so, Michael, I'll, I'll answer first, doctor, and make it easy. What would you do in my, my shoes? I would invest the other 80% in cash straight in stocks today. If it was me, that's what I would do. Um, you may not, and that's okay, but that's what I would do. Uh, in terms of gr- strategy and, and in ETFs, if that's what you're looking for, then you've got to choose between how you invest in, in growth stocks. It is fair to say, I, and Doc, I'm almost, uh, I, I'm a million percent sure you'll agree with me here, there is probably more growth to be had in the US for a whole lot of reasons, including the um, the, the policy settings, the uh, tax settings on dividends, um, just the general types of businesses that are listed there. So if I was a betting man, I would say there's more raw growth to be had overseas than here. But that's my thoughts, Doc. I'm only all right, according to Michael, so he doesn't really care what I think. He really cares what you think, even if you are on Tinder, I mean Insta. Um, so he's an 80% cash, 20% ETFs. He's a growth investor. What would you do if you were in his shoes, as he asks? Yeah, so Michael, mate, uh, uh, number one, I'm not on Tinder. Let's <laughs> clarify that. It's good to have disclosures, open I would, disclosures. I would, I would download Tinder to check that, but I'm not that silly. My wife would also wonder why I was downloading Tinder. Yeah. So I'm going to take your word for that, mate. I'm not going to check so, that. Yeah, if, and if somebody wants to check and Scott can check, uh, <laughs> it, 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 all the onus is going to be on him, <laughs> not on me. Okay, now Tinder aside and, and Insta aside, I'm not on Insta either. Um <laughs> You see, with cash, I think different people have different philosophies. Um, I prefer to be mostly invested, but I do prefer to keep some cash, uh, largely yeah. because, um, you know, again, I think personally what I feel is, philosophically, it is true that if you're invested uh, most of the time, then, or if you're mostly invested, then you're likely to do better than not being mostly invested because mm-hmm. cash is basically sitting there doing nothing. Uh, it's a drag. Uh, y- you then have to be okay with the volatility that comes with it. Mm-hmm. Um, my strategy has always been that I invest in much higher risk companies, mm-hmm. which swing a lot, and uh, I prefer to have activity when the market is down, or rather I prefer to do the activity when the market is down, mm-hmm. um, and my stocks go up and down a lot. <laughs> so um, that activity actually gives me a sense of control, and it's just a pure mental mechanism. It's actually not any control, it's just a mental mechanism that I've got. Right. I like to be in control, I feel like I'm in control, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm actually not in control because the share <laughs> prices are, are going up and down on yes, their own, yes, yes. but it is just it is that it just helps me, yeah. and, and everybody needs to find a mechanism that works for them. Totally. Uh, 
uh, and that's the most important thing. So if you know, having it's a version of the sleep at night test, right? It's like what yeah. makes you feel like you can invest with the yeah. maximum level of confidence is having some degree of control, or being able to take an action when you feel like it's worth doing. Yeah, ex- exactly. But no, that said, I would say that eighty percent cash is a lot of cash because that cash is not. It's uh, a big call. It's a big, big call. Like markets are going to be really right or really wrong. There's nothing in between here. Yeah, it's it's really, really like you have like you know if you have if there's a huge market dislocation, then having eighty percent cash and being able to get in at a bottom if mm, one can time mm, the bottom mm. in this case and have the mental fortitude to actually get in <laughs> at that time yeah. uh, when everybody is like running for the hill or yeah. you know uh, whatever um, then you're going to make a killing but otherwise mm, it's going to mm. be hard so I mean I think that level of cash is, is high um, you know personally I like to have like somewhere around 10-20% is sort of my preference um, on the order questions I've had more is large because I've been looking to buy a house or something mm. um, and uh, you know, so if there's some other immediate uh, purchase uh, that needs to be done, then I have cash. But otherwise, I wouldn't have that much cash personally. But again, as I said, I think this is something that it's really there's no one model. There is there is what Scott's answer is absolutely the, I think the theoretically correct answer. <laughs> um, and also, if you have got that mental ability to sort of tune everything out, then it is the correct answer. Mm. But then you need to find your own uh, sleep at night answer. So, with respect to growth stocks, I think yeah. Scott has answered that question. There are more more g- growth stocks of larger scale. Uh, in the U.S. markets, and and that's largely because even if you have like an Atlassian, for example, mm-hmm. if, if you're a, if you're an internationally large company and you want to operate at scale, mm-hmm. you're probably going to list in you know either the New York Stock Exchange or Nasdaq. Right. That's just, that's what you know. It's it's a little bit like the rich gets richer, the the famous gets you know even more famous. Uh, you know, it's it's that kind of thing. Is you know, uh, so it drives, and that's when Atlassian would, for example, go and list there, not here. Now I want to qualify that. What like we look at a lot of companies that are essentially, and we have some services that look at larger companies. But most of the companies we look at here are at the smaller end. And if you leave, say, the top one hundred companies, and I'm not inferring that the top one hundred companies there are no companies that do not invest like Mm -hmm. investable. There are some, you know, actually now we've got some really fast growing companies in the top one hundred or in the top fifty. This was not really the case maybe five years ago, but that has changed a bit, and mostly because of tech. Um, But if you go outside the top 100, even be outside the top 200, we would find a lot of what I would say growth companies, which have, which are, I, I, one way to classify them, I think of them as niche growth companies. And then okay. effectively, the way to think about this is you could pay, as, 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 an, as an example, you could pay 20 times sales for a global growth company, or you could pay 10 times sales for a niche growth company, right? You'd The company is smaller, um, the company in that case is larger. The company may not be growing at you know that pace, but it's probably growing enough to justify this multiple. And one of the good things about niche growth companies is that typically the you don't have you know the large tech companies mm-hmm. trying to crowd out that area. So that's an advantage in that sense because. It's not big enough. It's not a dial mover for those big companies, so that you know tend to like you know leave it. And then, um, if this small niche company actually does expand and become a big enough company, it be- probably becomes an acquisition candidate or something mm-hmm. like that for a big company. So it's a it's a little bit of 
the strategic type of cash deployment if one wants to invest in growth. So it's, I think it will be wrong to say that there aren't growth companies here. There are growth companies and commensurately mm-hmm. you would have to adjust for scale. Um, what's a mid cap in the US is like a ultra large cap on the ASX, right? But there are many interesting companies that I think are you know, sort of outside the ASX 200, and which is a good place to look at because a lot of people are not looking at it. It has less competition. It has less number of people, fund managers and investors looking into it. It requires a little bit of effort and work to figure out what works there. So there's a little bit more price disparity um, between what maybe it should be priced at and, you know, uh, what people are, for example, paying for it and things like mm-hmm. that. So, you know, and both the upside and the downside. But it, Companies in sort of the ASX 50 or the ASX 100 are well understood because, I mean, who doesn't understand Telstra, right? right? right, right. I mean, everybody knows Telstra. Yep. Telstra is yep. widely yep. followed, <laughs> uh, widely owned, right? And See, it's the only thing I'm going to disagree with you on this one, mate, I, I, take, I take the general point, but if that was true, there'd be never be any mispricing on these stocks. So I, I would argue there is going to be a time or times when you can make money on individual stocks, maybe even the index, but less so there, when you can buy Telstra whenever. I mean, Telstra went between, you know, two dollars to to nine dollars, back to two dollars, back to four dollars, back to three dollars forty or something. It is now. There's been, you know, for, for the not 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 to trade the stock, but to to buy to to find prices that were seemingly, at least based on history, attractive, and then seemingly unattractive or at least attractive to sell. Um, you didn't have to be a hyper trader; you didn't have to day trade the thing. But there were there were times when Telstra or Woolies Woolies has been to forty and twenty and forty over the last two or three years. Um, they're well understood businesses, but the market still manages to get this stuff horribly wrong in terms of pricing. Yeah. So what I mean there, I'm not talking about fair pricing. What I, or like or or fair? I mean, you know, the fair value would be a range of things. What I what right. I mean is, they are underst- well understood that it is really hard to have, like, a variant perception with sort of a long term uh, focus. Like, I mean, if you want, if you want, like, I mean, how. It is really mm. hard. You'd have to have a very specific thesis uh, about, say, Telstra yeah. that would justify owning Telstra. You know, the thesis could be that, you know, I think 5G is going to do this uh, to Telstra. It's going to have this uptake. And it's, it's got to be really based on um, certain pieces of drivers, mm-hmm. right? Because, I mean, if you think about penetration of Telstra, well, yeah. I mean, it's pretty much penetrated yeah. as much as it could. Right. It's not. It's not yeah. that the market is expanding yeah. and that they're going to go. You know, Telstra is going to right, go right, into right. these new areas. Right. It's not. Yeah. Telstra is going to be in the same areas it has yeah. been forever. Or even if it does, the, the the size of those new areas relative to the size of its current business yeah. are too small, right? Yeah. Woolies can go into or try to go hardware, for example. Even if it had been successful in that, it would have still been a tiny proportion of its grocery sales and liquor sales, for example. Yeah, and the chance that a big company like that that moves slowly that is going to be successful in a completely different vertical <laughs> is very <laughs> very low so what i mean by that yeah. is like you know it's really hard to find you you can always make a valuation call but it's yeah. purely a valuation call some number of people would be making a valuation call yeah. but i think telstra yeah. is underpriced because i think my dcf says it should be this much yeah right. and that's perfectly valid but it's really hard to find oh that company uh that is doing i don't know uh <laughs> breast cancer screening software yeah, yeah. well yeah. nobody's heard of it yeah. right and uh, it's too small nobody's heard of it it's market nobody understands so that's more when i when i say misperception perception and um, you know lack of understanding it's that mm. nobody really knows well how much is the total market yeah. opportunity there how many markets can get into who are its competitors there's a i mean everybody knows who's who's telstra i mean what <laughs> knowledge that one 
that one can have for Telstra. So, I mean, Telstra's competitors, everybody knows TPG. And it's like, <laughs> you know, there's Vodafone, there's TPG, and there's like, you know, Optus. We yep, know, yep, yep. know the market. I mean, so, so I think if one is willing to, like, it's if one is thinking about just buy to hold mm-hmm. sort of investment strategy, then if you're looking at that side, the lower side, the smaller companies, you could mm-hmm. effectively say, well, I understand this company. I think this company has these, these, these opportunities. Um, you know, yeah, right. it, it, and over a 10 year period, this can work out like this. Mm-hmm. You can bank on that. I don't know. Like, I mean, what, you know, un- the valuation is only one component of that. Sure. There's a lot of other things sure. that you can learn, which I think a lot of the other things you can just read a report and mm-hmm. know about, well, this is what, Australia is. Nice. So go back, go back to the question from Michael, despite the fact he doesn't always have his question answered other than that good hashtag. Um, if you, so you would be more than 80% in, you'd be less than 80% cash from the sound of it? Um, no, I would not be on that. So you'd be, you'd be less than 80% cash though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As I said, I, I, put, I answered that by saying 10 yeah. to 20% max. Yeah. And then, oh, sorry, I just wanted to re- restate. Yeah. So you answered that absolutely. And then he, if he's an ETF investor, is it is it is it the US? Is it Asia? Where would you invest your ETF growth cash? Oh, like so look, I like a few number. There are a number of ETFs. Again, this depends on uh, what you want to do, yep. right? So you could you could if you want to have like the a tech ETF, then the Nasdaq 100, which is a recommendation in some of our services, mm-hmm. is is a very nice ETF. It gives you one one sort of one shot, uh, you know, diversification on ownership of 100 companies proportional to their market cap. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one. If you are interested in um, uh, Asian technology, there's an Asia ETF. There's several others. Like there's there are sector specific ones. Um, one that I particularly like is uh, the cybersecurity one um, from BetaShares mm. uh, called Hack. Um, again, you know, it gives you a very specific sector, and you might get some overlap between mm. Hack and um, Nasdaq 100. Yeah, so those, those would be like you know. Um, Personally, I'm a fan of buying individual businesses, but if you don't, you know, if it's too much work, I mean, it's not that much work these days mm. with a stake and things mm. like that, that is really easy to set up an account. Uh, <laughs> might as well do that instead of... Um, You're not liking his ETF strategy, are you? No, no, I actually, like, you know, so I run Motley Fool Pro and, um, you know, it has a go anywhere strategy yeah. where we actually have significant uh, investment in ETFs. I think ETFs plus ASX stocks mm. can be a, brilliant strategy mm. for investing and it's really working very well for pro uh, but what my point is that there are many ways to skin the cat in this case right i mean yeah. you can have just some asx st- stocks in your portfolio plus a bunch of etfs that give you international uh, diversification and international exposure to certain sectors and you're done but uh, effectively, you know, that's sort of the strategy that we take in pro. But if you want to invest, like if you wanted to own yeah. X percentage of Amazon, the only way to do that is by directly buying Amazon. So if, if somebody wants to actively manage the portfolio yep. and decide, I want to own, you know, Alphabet at this percentage and Amazon at that percentage, mm-hmm. then the only way to do that, you know, and that th- these days that's really easy with, you know, things like steak and there's you know, many others that right, you know, allow you right. to invest. So um, you could do that too. Um, all I'm saying is that you know basically there are multiple multiple options mm. to you know do it. in fact there are too many options these days. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's, it's previously so there true. were no so true. Yep. Yeah. So yep. there's it's more confusion because there's too yep. many options. <laughs> Very good, mate. I reckon that's going to do it for this particular podcast. We'll be back next. Well, actually this Sunday with a special mailbag edition, which I know is going to surprise absolutely everybody. It's no longer special. I know. What is special is your service, Motley Full Extreme Opportunities, and I think people should join that service because it's as I said. Say it with me, 
stupidly cheap. That's right. Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities is Doc's ASX small cap growth moonshot fantastic businesses of winners of tomorrow service. I'm clearly not in marketing, mate, because that's the best kind of description I come up with. He and Kevin are trying to find the very best businesses they can find on the ASX that have meaningful long-term growth potential, knowing it's higher risk, knowing they'll have some absolute strikeouts, but expecting, as I do, that some of those stocks will be big, big, big winners and more than pay for the losers and beat the market in the process. If that sounds like something you're interested in, as Michael might be, if he's stepping out of his ETFs and with that 80% cash, maybe there's some opportunity to do that, um, join him, join Doc at fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. That's EO for extreme opportunities. Fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. You get a very special deal. As I said, stupid cheap. Cheap than a cup cup of coffee. You know what I was going to say? Cost of a cup of coffee a week. I can't say that quickly. I've got to stop and actually think about it. That's really Cost of a cup of coffee a week. Cost of a cup of coffee. It's it's like, I know. Impossible. I know. So stop me saying that by going to fool.com.au <laughs> forward slash EO podcast so I can say something else instead. Join Doc. <laughs> More importantly, you'll hopefully make a decent amount of money, I would expect. No guarantees. We can't give those. But uh, Doc and Kevin doing a spectacular job and they're absolute level best to bring you their very best ASX small cap growth ideas that they can find. So give them a go. All right, mate. We're done. Our listeners should, though, of course, subscribe to the AAA Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes, their favourite Android podcast app, or the Podcast One app. But if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review. Throw us some stars. Tell your friends, because more foolishness means more people that are getting to invest the right way and hopefully having a bit of fun along the way. Speaking of which, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash... Triple M. Triple M. I also this week wrote something about the fact that our economy is changing permanently as a result of COVID. There's a tease. If you want to find out more about that, look that up on Twitter. But that's the sort of email you'll get, plus some marketing by going to that particular URL. In the meantime, that's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back on Sunday with a special mailbag dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.